1: Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our final hour of the week. It's the hour I look so forward to because we get to be joined by one of my favorite public intellectuals and academics. That is Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He's also a senior fellow at the Davenport Institute. Pete Peterson, welcome back. Thanks for joining us on a light news day.
2: Great to be back with
1: you, <laughs> Light news day, sir. I have to tell you. Yes, is there something
2: breaking out there?
1: Well, <laughs> something broke. Yeah, something broke. <laughs> I, I, we'll talk about that uh, in a, in a few sure, yes. moments. Um, I, I I had an exchange with you. We we usually don't usually we usually don't go into do much show prep. You and I. We just kind of. We we kind of know what we're thinking and, and, and get to share with each other. But I did tell you today, I, I did have a question that's been weighing on me all week uh, with my producer, Bill, because I've noticed I started this habit of buying books I read a long time ago, rereading yeah. books. And um, I, I, I'm happy to give you my list, um, and I'd love to hear yours. And it's interesting that you told me, if I understood you right, that in the books you're rereading they have been basically i think the word you used was forced by events yep. you've had to uh, you know endure and be bear witness to talk to me a little bit about that well because um, what well, the reason, reason i say that is that explains my 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 rereading books too it's well just,
2: no and i think again just in our uh, very brief and earlier exchange i your prompting that uh, you've been rereading books, I think, is uh, a wonderful um, way of of thinking about our own reading lists and what's informing us. And uh, I have not been able to do that, just given uh, the reading load that's come upon me because of some events that uh, and panels that I've been asked to speak on. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, A few weeks ago, I was asked to uh, speak on a review panel for uh, Don Devine's new book, The Enduring Tension, uh, which explores and makes a moral case for capitalism. Um, Then this past week, we had Rod Dreher here for a conference based on his book, *Live Not By Lies, and so I went back and read through that. And then um, just this week, I'm involved in a book study group hosted by the American Enterprise Institute in uh, D.C., and we were all provided, a small group of maybe 15 of us were provided copies of a, a new book by two scholars at Furman University, um, Ben story and his wife Jenna story. Uh, their book is called Why We Are Restless, and so um, those are the books I've been reading, but the, the thought about going back, um, you know, that I have to confess that's a practice that I've had on a couple books, um, but just have not been able to do that um, in the last year, just given. All the other stuff
1: well, I have to tell you, in my case, it's all your fault, and you may <laughs> not <laughs> it is because you were telling me about this conference uh, live not by laws uh, that centered on um, yeah. on on Rod Dreher's book because it drove me back to rereading Solzhenitsyn, yeah uh, which I thought I you know I, I picked up appropriately enough uh, to live with and to you know be comfortable with. And then yep. I went back and was rereading a few of his things, uh, including his great commencement speech at uh, at, at Harvard, Harvard. and yeah. and commentary about that. And I realized, boy, is it valuable to go back and reread these things with the adult brain, or at least this theoretically more well-read brain and more experienced brain than when you were 18, 19, 20, or yeah. even thirty. Yeah, and you pick up and also so with much a bit different.
2: With different cultural yep. circumstances yep. as well. Absolutely
1: right. So, right. Absolutely yeah. right. And you look at it. So let me, let me give you a, uh, shall I say, let me give you a for instance, <laughs> if, I can, yeah. if I can, Pete. I have a theory, a working theory on this. One of the books I've been rereading, I think a lot of people have been rereading, is George Orwell's 1984 my favorite T-shirt of the year, did I tell you this? My favorite T-shirt of the year so far is the one that says, Make George Orwell Fiction Again. And uh, maybe we should print those up for Pepperdine and 960, huh? But, <laughs> but, but you know, you go back and read some of this stuff, and it's eerie. Like when he writes about how literature uh Including the names Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, and Byron, he actually mentions that will no longer be read, and yeah. if they are, they will be changed into meaning something contradictory of what they used to mean and I thought, oh boy he was he was ahead of he was ahead of all of us, but we first were introduced in nineteen eighty four in high school, and I think a lot of children, a lot of kids, high school students, or even young adults, say this is such a dystopia, it doesn't really mean much it's a it's a fantasy, we don't have to take it that too seriously, if that makes sense. And then, holy smokes, here we are and saying, boy, I wish it took took that more seriously. Does that make a little bit of sense?
2: Yeah, it does. And again, it, it goes to the importance—you and I have talked about this before—sometimes it's not what you're reading, but when you're reading
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: that really can determine the impact of a book. And sometimes, at least have the experience that I think you have, too, sometimes it's Reading books in sequence that you didn't even initially see their the threads that connect them, uh-huh. but all uh-huh. of a sudden you you begin to see those uh-huh. uh, things line up, and I think that's a rather providential view of how we read and when we read and what we're supposed to be learning and understanding. But you're absolutely right to say that those are the those are the books that, uh, and I and I think the. Popularity, the fact that a book like Live Not by Lies yeah. has become a New York Times bestseller, um, speaks to the the broader popular understanding that the arguments, even if they had never heard of Solzhenitsyn before picking up that book, uh, they certainly have become newly aware uh, that uh, many of the arguments that uh, Solzhenitsyn was making back in the 70s. In some cases, reflecting back to his uh, friends and countrymen in the Soviet Union, um, are becoming eerily relevant to what's happening in American political culture today.
1: You know, not only that—that—that that, 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 in there is a is is a very strong point you're making, which is so uh, a lot of these people that we did read in, um, in in when we were growing up in the '70s, '60s, '70s, and '80s they they're just not on the curriculum anymore and you know probably right. more than a generation has passed since they were or at least a generation yeah. has passed in many cases since they were how how do we how do we get that back into our uh, in, into our intellectual furniture yeah right yeah. and 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 you do it the way Rod Dreher did it you write a book about it and you get the curiosity yeah. peaked right i mean i would not well, have was... gone back and reread solzhenitsyn if i did not know about you and your Rod Dreher conference
2: well, and I'll just make a uh, just two points based on exactly what you said. The, the last panel of the conference itself was this, what I call the a, a how-now-shall-we-live mm-hmm. discussion around how people of faith, given the arguments that Dreyer's laid out in the book and also in the keynote that he gave here and the other two panels that we had leading up to it, which were looking at Dreyer's arguments both in the academy as well as um, in government and public policy, how-now-shall-we-live?, and one of the points that I raised there, the questions that I raised to the panel was, even if you didn't take seriously, or at least you weren't convinced, that of Dreyer's arguments as to the relevance of these Solzhenitsyn original arguments and the relevance to America today the book would stand on its own just as a revisiting of what actually happened then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I and I think in, in some ways I, I have to say that the American Church is, uh, has really woefully abdicated its, its role in teaching uh, people of faith about that era, not only of Of what's what happened in the Soviet Union and and what uh, people of faith uh, had to endure, but also uh, and this was another one of our panelists is a a graduate here at the policy school named Habi Zhang, who was on the first panel talking about the issues related to higher education. She was born and raised in China, and has written very powerfully on what she's seeing as these issues. That she experienced growing up in China coming about now in American political culture, we are not teaching what's going on in China right now, and people of all faith really uh, are are un, unprepared uh, for the the broader arguments that are happening now in American political culture.
1: Uh, can we talk a little bit about that and also maybe a little yep. bit about uh the race issue that has come storming back in light of the Rittenhouse decision or anything else that's been brought to our to our forefront over the last couple of uh, last couple of years uh because it's gonna require a lot of rereading. Maybe in bad not a bad place to start would be the Gettysburg Address which we celebrate today too. Pete we'll cover all that on the other side of this break if that's okay with you. Sounds good. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, that website, publicpolicy.pepperdine. Edu. When we talk about the problems in higher education, Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the solution. Uh, Pete, we were talking about rereading things, um, and perhaps the reason that classics are worth rereading is that their pertinence never goes away in a society like ours where we seem to repeat a lot of history before our very eyes now sometimes that we thought was settled. It turns out it's not. So a lot of people see what's going on in the United States over the last two, three years being very much, uh, very much reminiscent of things that took place in the mid to late 60s and early 70s in this country that we thought we had a grip on, particularly having to do with uh, racial and economic issues. Uh, we're talking today on both the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address and uh, the uh, the not guilty uh, verdict of Kyle Rittenhouse, which never should have been made, as far as I can tell, never should have been made, an, uh, a, a case about race. Uh, you have a white defendant and three uh, white uh, three white people who he shot, uh, and yet uh, even Al Sharpton. Uh, Today is talking about, uh, he tweets out, these continue to be dark days for black people killed at the hands of people that believe our lives do not matter. Not an issue, uh, was not the issue at all in this case. Our secretary of state, a candidate for governor here in Arizona, um, tweeted out uh, that this will encourage more white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Um, I worry about a lot of things here. One junk thought and bad history I also worry about, I don't know if you worry about this, there's a phrase for it I learned recently. It's called syntactical saturation. It's when a word or phrase is so overused it loses its meaning. Racist was that. Fascist was that. It seems like the left brought white supremacy into our lexicon um, to, because they had ruined the toxic meaning of racism and yeah. other negatives, right, pejoratives. Yeah. And it just seems to me when you add when you call someone a white supremacist, absent any evidence, you might as well be calling the moon the sun. I don't know yeah. if, if any of this is is ringing true in your mind as well. But we've it gone is, through although, this before, right?
2: We have done well. This yeah, before. and you know, I, I I will say just to poke at our own side of the aisle. I think. Um, conservatives, or at least some elected Republicans, overuse the term socialist or communist to condemn those who they disagree with politically, right? And I think that that is something that on, on both sides of the aisle we need to we need to be considering. But to your your important point that you're making about this written house case, I have not seen the survey data, but my guess is if you were to survey most Americans. Given what they've been told about that case, and ask them if if they understood that uh, the victims of the shootings were all white, I guarantee a large percentage of Americans would not think that.
1: And some of I, I'm with you on that. I was making that point earlier. This is an actual a great a great challenge before us. You as an educator and and, and me as a, uh, as a as a as uh, a public airwaves commentator. This this is a a true challenge because a great deal of this country probably more than half operates <coughs> operates on things that aren't true i was going to say lies but it's not always lies many of them inferences. Yeah, yeah yeah many many of, yeah. many of them may just not know better they may not be sifting things through an ideological lens they just get their news from cnn the arizona republic and the la times and think they're well informed And by being well-informed, they would think Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist, Brett Kavanaugh a rapist, um, Trump winning the 2016 election because of the Kremlin, on and on I could go, right? On and on I can go. This is a real challenge for us. None of those things are true. Probably more than half of Americans believe they are.
2: Well, and to the degree that these kinds of public opinion questions are raised, they're usually raised in such a way to condemn those on the right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think in in the particular issues that we're talking about, uh, while I I I'm almost positive that a good percentage of Americans would be unsuspecting in their answer and rather innocent yeah. if they were to answer that, uh, you know, they would be surprised to know that it was all they, these were all white victims in the case of the Rittenhouse shootings, but. The media is very intentional, I believe, in the inferences they're making that are looking to create this air of suspicion, and by introducing the topic of race where it really – there's no inherent reason to do so here, um, I I, I think is, again, another condemnation of the mainstream media, and they're contributing to a, a polarized Uh, public square.
1: Demand, Larry Elder says, on issues racial is not outrunning supply. And that's why there is so much of this now from professional, high, elite cultural institutions, whether they are news organizations or the academy, right? And you um, you have been talking a little bit here and there about this new uh, effort in the academy, this uh, thing people may not know much about. It's another yep. effort at doing the right thing by our children, uh, the University of Austin. You want to say something about that?
2: Yeah, well, I had actually gotten word about this new University of Austin in Austin, Texas, um, from uh, some friends that we both know who were involved in the early stages of the effort. It was not announced until uh, about a week or 10 days ago. uh, The creation of a new academic institution offering both graduate and undergraduate degrees, uh, planning to open their doors in the fall of next year, um, with, with continuing rollouts over the next couple of years. But this new University of Austin is essentially grounded on a rigorous Western Civ curriculum taught through the principles of what is now called today viewpoint diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people involved range from um, Neil, the historian Neil Ferguson and his wife, Ian Hirsi Ali, to Folks like Bill McClay and Harvard, uh, Harvard's uh, Stephen Pinker, and others. And while there's still Glenn Lowry would hurdles, be part of it,
1: I think Larry Summers Glenn Lowry is part of it. Larry yep. Weiss uh-huh. is right. a
2: part of it. Right. And so it's it launched with a lot of splash and a lot of sizzle. And there still are some hurdles to cross as far as getting academic accreditation, which is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, but how that's being responded to by the left is if, you know, this was some, you know, uh, grifting uh, scheme. I'm a part of a Silicon Valley investor named Joe Lonsdale who's putting a lot of his own money up to support <laughs> this, and I think it really does speak to the broader critique of academia when a thoughtful group of people come together and want to launch an academic institution like this and are and are really being pilloried. Uh, by the left for doing so.
1: Let's talk a little bit, that this short segment, and you hear the music. Let's talk a little bit more about this. It's interesting what they perceive to be a threat, right? Uh, yep. One, one new school in, in Texas, yeah. uh, right? One one small island Not versus an ocean. I'll, <laughs> I have a funny line I'll open the next segment with. You'll like it. Uh, I'm Seth Leaveson. He's Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leapson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I'm trying to remember where I heard this from, Pete, but I want to just say a little bit more, or have you say a little bit more about this fight over the University of Austin, which is a new college that is being developed by, um, uh, you might just say classical liberals. A lot of people who are Mm -hmm. involved with this are not necessarily people of the right. Larry Summers worked for... Uh, Bill Clinton is Secretary of the Treasury, others you have mentioned, uh, Steven Pinker. I'm working off memory here, but there's a series of Jonathan Rauch, certainly no man of the right. Uh, Barry Weiss would, uh, I don't think, consider herself a person of the right necessarily either. Would she? I don't know. Maybe she would. I, I don't think she does. But in any event, um, the resistance to it, uh, someone recently was re-quoting Irving Kristol, maybe it was you. Talking about how universities in his lifetime, he said universities were islands of repression and oceans of freedom. And mm-hmm. someone remarked, uh, "If Irving Kristol were alive today, he'd have to say that those islands got a little bigger and those oceans have uh, gotten, oh, shall we just say, a little more shallow, haven't they? Those oceans of freedom." Uh, when I think about when I think about the societal pushback against the University of Austin. I think about the allegory of the cave, Plato's allegory of the cave. The people that get become enlightened want to go back into the cave and rescue the people who are living a lie, right? And the people who are living the lie fight them. They fight them, I suppose, like someone who's drowning fights his rescuer. Mm. And yet the obligation is still to save them, isn't it? Uh, that, that there's some of that going on here, isn't there? One new conservative university to add to the four that exist... Is a huge threat to them, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I and I have to say that if you look at the launch announcement and uh, even their website, the word conservative actually never appears. Right,
1: right. right. Uh, this is That's really just point.
2: what you would call a, a a true classical liberal arts academic institution that is seeking to defend uh, the Western civilization uh, curriculum uh, and canon and And to do so in a way that argues certainly in the public statements made by uh, the new president of this institution, Keno Canellos, who comes from uh, presidency of St John's College um, in Annapolis, which is a great uh, liberal arts you bet. college you bet. and he's definitely making a more aggressive. Uh, argument for why the University of Austin is needed. But when you look at the uh, actual proposal for the institution, it is not ideological.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and the fact that it is receiving this kind of backlash, uh, I've broken the backlash down into uh, the suspicious, the ignorant, and the arrogant. Oh, good. And uh, if you read the the, the reams of uh, pieces that are being written about this, um, there are those that are uh, wondering why an institution like this is needed because isn't everything great already in higher ed <laughs> in the the ignorant there's yeah. a piece like that in uh in in slate um but but there are a, a number of uh very arrogant pieces about um you know something like this is is really uh borders on on racist and this time is you know come and gone for an institution like this and how dare we listen to uh these pseudo academics you know and uh it really is is self condemning in many ways but but speaks to uh the argument for the importance of this classical liberal arts approach uh one that one that is undergirded by this uh, pursuit of of both academic excellence and Uh, To do so in a way in which people feel students and faculty feel free to, uh, you know, express themselves and, and question.
1: Freedom of and, thought. Uh, yeah, no, you make a very valid point and a very important one. To call it conservative is to do it a disservice. I'm looking at some of the people involved. Nadine and Jonathan yeah. Rausch, Larry right. Summers, Jeffrey yeah. Stone, just three Barry or four Weiss, I know. Yeah, yeah, I don't think any of them have ever voted for anyone but Democrats, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, certainly know. Know, I, I certainly know that to be the case in, in many of these uh, instances. Uh, can you stay just a little bit longer? Sure. I'd love to keep you. I want to. Um. I want to take this. Uh, I want to take this discussion to something. I was surprised to see one of the names on this. Happily surprised uh, to see one of the names involved with this was uh, Heather Haying. Uh, some people know her story if, if they saw the movie No Safe Spaces that Dennis Prager did. She yeah. was one of the professors at Evergreen State. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, she's. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what she's taught. What she wrote in her recent book about the youth of our country, and um, a little bit about what happens in academia when the inmates take over the asylum. Can we talk a little bit about that when we come back? Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson. We will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, the website publicpolicy.pepperdine dot edu pete this this is something i I, i've wanted to run by you it's the opportunity uh for me to share a quote that uh, i think is really very important we were talking about the university of austin one of the people involved is heather hang she was recently Mm -hmm. most recently a professor of biology over at evergreen state uh before Mm -hmm. the cancel culture and the mob got to her she uh with her husband wrote a book recently and This line, uh, this two sentences, may I read them to you? I'd love you to just say anything you want about it because I think no one has captured it better than Heather Hain. It's a fine needle to thread, giving children enough space to make their own decisions and mistakes and protecting them from real danger. Our societal pendulum has swung too far to one side to protecting children against all risk and harm such that many who come of age under this paradigm feel that everything is a threat that they need safe spaces, that words are violence. By comparison, children with exposure to diverse experiences, physical, psychological, intellectual, learn what is possible and become more expansive. It is imperative that children experience discomfort in each of these realms, physical, psychological, and intellectual. Absent that, they end up fully grown but confused about what harm actually is. They end up children in the bodies of adults. Pretty poignant, no?
2: It is, and and goes back to the importance of this liberal arts Western civ tradition. Yep. Um, I was at a, a conference over the summer with some uh, more conservative academics, and they were wondering how they might be able to better promote the classes that they teach, uh, because they were not getting a lot of help from the administration. And I said, well, if you just called it Uh, making more resilient students, and just taught the same liberal arts, humanities curriculum, uh, chances are you're going to get a lot of support from both uh, the administration and students, because on college campuses today, the watchword is resilience. Mm. How can we make our students more resilient? Because there's this broader understanding in academia that college students— are facing many of these issues that have just been laid out there in that excellent quotation that you've given us from the professor. The ability to withstand uh, challenges, uh, difficulties, if you will, tragedy, (laughs) Um, these are all borne out in the stories of the great books and the profiles and biographies of uh, great men and women and in Scripture— and yet these are the resources that we feel that we need to shunt aside and that have become antiquated and outdated. And for all the reasons that you've just laid out there, um, this this approach to how we prepare human beings uh, into maturity as adults has become more important than ever.
1: It's it's part of a problem if I can if I can get if I can say something perhaps that that is critical of of your profession just a little bit not you but but many in your profession. I have a lot of critiques of people in my profession Pete don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but but if I might. People think about, you know, the pushback from the university professors which supposedly uh, have um, at least in my view I should say have been responsible for so much junk thought suffusing our society and people think of these professors as uh, older folks uh, you know they were they were they were they were raised in the 60s and and now they're of you know a near retirement age and 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 you know they're of Marxists of yore and, and leftists of yore it's not true really uh, what we what we what we forget is, or what we don't see, is that so many of the professoria really are very young people. I mean, they're people in their thirties and forties, aren't they? They are these this generation that was raised to become uh, a child in an adult body, right? I, I think that's true.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's right. And again, even the the concept of safe spaces would yeah. be anathema yeah. to. Uh, the, the the great moral teachers of our time. I mean, again, this is this is really driving very much uh, from the Judeo-Christian tradition. But even if we were to look at uh, the Eastern philosophers and thinkers, you know, the the way to maturity is through challenge and overcoming challenges. And uh, and again, I I think you and I agree that this can be done at least in a classroom, if not in life itself through experiencing and reading about and learning about the lives of others and the debates and challenges that others have faced. I mean, why is it that Hamilton is one of the great, Mm -hmm. most popular uh, pieces of art, if you will, that Mm -hmm. we have Mm -hmm. in the country right Mm -hmm. now? We don't don't go to the true story there to say maybe there's something appealing about somebody overcoming real challenges Mm -hmm. in life to succeed. Um, but for some reason, that awareness doesn't make its way into uh, many different places within academia.
1: No, I, I, I think you're right, and, and and others have proven some of this as well. Da- I, I like to point out, you know, David McCullough, the great historian, he became a yep. tremendous bestseller of almost every book he wrote. Uh, none of them really assigned in college. These are books he wrote that people bought after they left college, because they, they realized maybe they were missing something, don't you think? Yeah. yeah,
2: No, exactly right. And he, I'll never forget, he gave one of the great talks on, on leadership I ever heard. Oh, Not really? only was he, he a great writer, but a great speaker. And again, many of the themes of both his writing and speaking is about giving great tribute to those who overcame great ob- obstacles um, for success. And, uh, you know, again, just to look at Jordan Peterson and yeah. the 12 Rules for Life, yeah. I mean, it's not as if there's not a broader public hunger uh, for this kind of instruction and a realization of these mm-hmm. the importance of these principles. But, again, it seems to stop at the gates of many academic institutions.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Not yours, not Pepperdine School yeah, of Public true. Policy. Uh, and that's in large part... Uh, due to the, uh, to the great people who, who are there, who have helped put it together in your leadership, Pete Peterson. I enjoy these talks so much. More importantly, I so appreciate you doing what you're doing. I think you may have the best job in the world. So if you ever decide to retire, disagree. let me know. I'm the
2: most grateful dean in America.
1: <laughs> Pete Peterson, bless you, sir. Uh, we won't talk before Thanksgiving, so have a very ha- happy and healthy one. You too, Seth. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you uh, for spending some of your afternoon with us. I closed the show yesterday by mentioning an organization at ASU. Uh, Its Twitter account is Students for Socialism, ASU. Its descriptor is Students for Socialism at Arizona State University is a socialist revolutionary Marxist club. Our mission is to end capitalism and fight for socialism, just so you understand the nexus between socialism and Marxism. By the way, one of the students um, involved in the racial assaults at asu we 've been talking about uh, has, uh, has been uh, part and parcel of that organization. Why do I think that 's important? Well, it goes to the issue I was saying books i 'm rereading one of them is witnessed by Whitaker Chambers. Uh, I, these students have no concept of what they are doing. I don't think the teachers might, the graduate students might. In witness, you will read there is one experience with which most sincere ex-communists share, whether or not they go only part way to end of the question it poses. The daughter of a former German diplomat in Moscow was trying to explain to me why her father, who as an enlightened modern man had been pro-communist, had become an implacable anti-communist later in life. It was hard for her because as an enlightened modern girl, she shared the communist vision without yet being a communist, but she loved her father and the irrationality of his defection away from communism embarrassed her. He was immensely pro-Soviet, she said, and then you will laugh at me, but you must not laugh at my father. And then, one night in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. Simply, one night, he heard screams. A child of reason in the 20th century, she knew that there is a logic of the mind. She did not know that the soul has a logic that may be more compelling than the mind's. She did not know at all that she had swept away the logic of the mind, the logic of history, the logic of politics, the myth of the 20th century with five annihilating words. One night he heard screams. Hope those kids at ASU get a little more enlightened before that happens, before that transpires, or before it gets imposed on the rest of us at an institution we pay for. God bless you all. I hope you have a great weekend. Until Monday, class is dismissed.